Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Our series is entitled The Way, and we're going through this gospel looking specifically at the way in which Jesus navigated his life, the way, he w- the way in which he did all sorts of different things. Uh, and from the passage we just read here in Mark 7, um, we have a particular theme that I want us to look at uh, this morning for our Bible study. So if you'd like to take notes, uh, here in the verses we read in Mark 7, that was verses 24 through chapter 8, verse 10, we want to look today at the way Jesus moved. The way Jesus moved. Now, the Gospel of Mark could really be summarized as Jesus on the move. It's the one gospel that that presents Jesus as always moving, always acting, always going from place to place to place. How many of us by now, after five months in this series, hopefully somebody knows the answer to this question, but how many of us know what is Mark's favorite word to use about Jesus? Immediately. In the old King James, it's straight away. All right? Everything is happening in Jesus' life in Mark immediately. He's always on the move. He's never really stationary, just kind of passing time. It's this picture of this servant that's here to be busy about the Father's business. And he's going from person to person, town to town. Certainly, as we saw here in the passage, there are moments where he's taking rests, or at least trying to. He gets a little Airbnb here and can't get any privacy. That's what we read. Um, Not a literal Airbnb. That's a newer invention. But you get the idea. Jesus is always on the move. Now, here in this passage, though, when we talk about the way Jesus moved, we have three stories about three things that not just generally, but particularly and almost provokingly moved Jesus. We see Jesus moved here in these verses uniquely by three specific things. Not just moved generally, as he's always moving, but we see that he is especially moved. In his heart, we see him moved. We see Jesus moved by compassion. And ultimately, we see Jesus moved to action. This is a passage about what moves God. What moves Jesus. Now, not in like a manipulative way, like here's 10 ways to move God to get him to do what you want. Any theology that's built around that idea is leading you to a dangerous place. The Christian faith is not about how we can move God to our advent or to our you know, plan and advantage. It's about instead, really what we see here, some genuine things that do move his heart. We see him moved here in this passage in some genuine ways. Now, we, we see this in the Old Testament as well. This is, uh, remember, um, that one of the things that we see from the life of Jesus, anytime we look at Jesus, is we see what God is like. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the snapshot. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus, for Jesus is God in the flesh. You can know what God is like because he has, as it says here in the passage, he hasn't been hidden. He has made himself known through the person of Jesus. And uh, we see a lot of pictures of this in the Old Testament. As Jesus is showing us this here in the New Testament, I I found a, a unique example of this in the Old Testament of God being moved. It's the story of King Manasseh in 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Growing up in the church, that always messed with me. First and second Chronicles and first and second Corinthians. That'll that'll jack you up a little bit. But it's second Chronicles in the Old Testament. It's the story of Israel and her rulers and kings and her judges and her priests and prophets. 
Um, some of those kings, we'll say a few of those kings, they got the thumbs up from the Lord. They did what was right in his sight. Most of them, they got the thumbs down. They failed to lead well. They failed to honor God by leading the people that were under them. Um, and for that poor example, you don't have to look any further than a guy named Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh was the, the heir to the throne of King Hezekiah, who did what was right. King Hezekiah brought incredible reform to the nation of Israel. He, he made things right again. He instituted true worship. He obliterated all the altars to the false gods. He freed and led his people out of idolatry, back to covenant relationship with God. And then Manasseh showed up, and just like, this, by the way, can happen in nations, newsflash, uh, you could have someone bring a lot of progress, and all it takes is one bad leader to, bring, to reel everything backwards. And, and that's what happens. That's not like a subtle political hot take, by the way. I'm just giving you facts of history, okay? Um, th that's what happens here in this passage. In 2 Chronicles, Manasseh, Basically, he, he completely topples all the great works, spiritually specifically, that Hezekiah did. And next thing you know, the, the nation is as wicked as possible. Manasseh is following the nations around him, being led after idol worship. He's worshiping the stars in the sky to the extent that they are killing their own children and babies. And the Bible tells us, this is interesting, that the reason why this happened and the reason why he in, in, enticed all the people to go this direction, it says it, it's interesting, it says that because no one paid attention. It's really interesting insight. Nobody paid attention. They were just kind of like on autopilot. Like, I'm just going to assume that whatever, wherever the country's going, it might, I'm just going to go along with it. And, and that's what happened under King Manasseh's reign until God brought judgment. God brought judgment on the nation of Israel for their, their wickedness and their sin, for the evil that they were doing. They were harming their own children, and God brought justice and judgment upon them. And this is what it took to get Manasseh's attention. He was like, maybe I should turn back to God now because I've ruined everything. I mean, that's really where he's ended up. He's seeing destruction within himself and all around him. And so Manasseh prays a prayer of repentance. I want you to see this. In, in, in 2 Chronicles uh, 33, it says, In his distress, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord. Can I just say it's never too late to cry out to God? No matter how much bad has come about in your life, no matter how far, how far you feel from God and how far God may feel from you, it's never too late. As long as you're under the sound of my voice right now, as long as you're alive, it's never too late to cry out to God in, in your worst distress. And he did. And he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, here's back to our idea in Mark, it says the Lord was what? The Lord was moved. He got the Lord's attention. Isn't that cool? God was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So we see, even in the Old Testament, the picture of, of God, listen, being moved by the prayers of his people. Uh, the big idea here, whether it's 2 Chronicles 33 with King Manasseh, or it's Mark chapter 7 or 8 where Jesus is feeding a multitude miraculously, we have a picture in Scripture of who God is in truth. Here's who God is in truth for you and my, your and my life this morning. What we see here and what we see in the Bible is this idea that God is not some stationary, unfazed, higher power off in the distance. 
We know that the Bible teaches God to be sovereign and in control, and he rules and he reigns, and God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases, and he will accomplish all things according to the counsel of his will. But there's also this idea in Scripture that, that projects God as involved. He's sovereign, he's high, he's lifted up, yet he's not unfazed from the troubles that you walk through. When we hurt, it's really easy to have these knee-jerk reactions to be like, I don't need to feel that pain because God has a plan and everything's going to be fine. But no, it's okay to stop. I think of Jesus when Lazarus is is, um, deceased and his sisters bring that report and Jesus hears about it. And what does he do? He doesn't go, well, don't worry about it. Don't get upset. He's going to come back to life in a couple days. I'm going to show up. It's going to be an epic scene. It's going to be in the Bible. They're going to use it for Easter sermons. It's going to be awesome. No, the Bible says Jesus, what? He, he wept. He was moved. He's involved. He's not stationary and unfazed by our pain and our problems. He's present. That's what we see. We see that we can move God, that God is movable in a sense. He can feel what we're going through. He can sympathize. He can relate. He is present. He is not some stationary, unfazed, higher power off in the distance, but he is a watchful, involved presence in our lives who is moved by our lives. And that's what we see here with Jesus. In this passage we read, we see Jesus being moved. Now let's ask this question. What moves Jesus? What moves Jesus? Now again, I'm not giving you three things to say. Here's how you can manipulate him. This this is just truthful observations here in the passage. In this passage, we see three things that genuinely moved Jesus. And I hope that they can be an encouragement and comfort to you, knowing that God is not unfazed by you in your life. What moves Jesus? Let's look at the first thing. The first thing that we see here in this passage is that Jesus is moved. He's moved by our faith. Jesus is moved by our faith. Our faith means something to God. Hebrews eleven six 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. If anyone comes to God, they must believe that he is and that he can be moved, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that God responds to faith. He's moved by faith. That's what we see here with Jesus in this first story, this first encounter we have here. Um, here, here's what it tells us. It's this picture of the faith of this Gentile woman who the, the circumstances of her faith is the trouble of her daughter who's demon-possessed. We see how her faith moved Jesus. Let's look back at it. It tells us this, that from there, Jesus arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. What's there? Well, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. The last verses we read, remember the, the Pharisees, they sent like a delegation to confront Jesus. You remember that last week? To interrogate him and find out what he was all about. Now Jesus is going to go get away for a while. And this is the, the, one of the only times in scripture that we see Jesus actually leaving the country. And he heads north to modern day Lebanon. Isn't that cool? Jesus is like, he didn't need a passport either. He's like, I'm dipping out. He's about to go on a big journey, uh, and it's a walk, we would assume, about 120 miles, and he goes like this, this, this uh, horseshoe journey around back to the east side of Galilee. But for now, it tells us he's going north out of Israel to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This was the Airbnb hilarious joke I told earlier. He entered a house, and he wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. You ever had days like this where you're like, I just need to get away. I just need, you know, I'm going to Disney Plus kids, buy. I'm going in here. And this is apparent, right? 
but he could not be hidden. Mom! All right, that's, that's totally what, what the situation here. Jesus goes to remain sort of anonymous. He wants to slip under the radar. We imagine his disciples are with him. He's trying to be incognito. He's trying to get away. But it says, the light was too bright. <laughs> um, he could not be hidden. Now, I want to say something about this. It's interesting. Jesus, if he wants to, let me say this, he can be hidden. There's a story in, uh, in the Gospel of John where there's a whole crowd around Jesus, and they're trying to do what to him? I mean, they're trying to stone him. And the Bible says that Jesus, just like Harry Houdini, gets out, like it's crazy. David Blaine style just dips out of the scene. You have no idea how it happens. He passes through the crowds un unscathed. And he was hidden. But in this case, he could not be hidden. When it was for the sake of ministry, it's really beautiful. Um, he could have probably been like, oh gosh, there's a crowd, peace out. You know, I don't know what he does. I just imagine Zoops involved, you know. But, um, but he could not be hidden. So there's a whole crowd that shows up and kind of the word spreads. Did you hear that healer, that teacher, that prophet from Galilee? He's in our town. Jeez, that guy Jesus in Lebanon? Like, yes, he's staying at... Bill's house, you know? Bill's house, you know? And so everyone shows up at Bill's house. And out of the crowds that show up at Bill's house, it tells us there's a woman. And this woman has a young daughter who has an unclean spirit. And she heard about him. She heard about Jesus. She heard about the man. Maybe she heard the story of the, the demoniac in the cave who had a legion of demons, thousands of spirits, and how Jesus was able to overpower and put that man back in his right mind and set him free from his demonic oppression. And so she heard of this, this conqueror Jesus who had this power. And so she, she thought to herself, well, if, if he can do that for him with all of his issues, he could certainly do that for me. So she comes to him and she falls down at his feet. And here's where we, where we begin to see the faith of this woman. The first thing that we see that moves Jesus, because this woman's faith is about to move him. The first thing that we see from her faith is that, and you can jot this down, it's not on the screen, but it, she has a faith that appeals to God's mercy and not her own merits. Her faith in what she's asking God to do for her, we're going to see, is not on the basis of her own merits. I've earned your answer from this, God. But it's based instead on his mercy. That's what she's casting herself on. In fact, we get this, and maybe you're like, "Where? I don't see that in Mark. It's actually in the Gospel of Matthew that tells this story with a little bit more context. In the Gospel of Matthew, the same story is told, but it says this in Matthew. It says, Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region. This is a pagan woman steeped in probably pagan worship. And there, there could, which could lead to a lot of ideas about what, how her daughter ended up unclean. Um, it's through usually what the parents bring in the house. It passes on to the, to the family. Um, but this is what happened. She comes to him, but notice her prayer. Look at this beautiful prayer. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Did you know that prayer can be that simple? And it can be, listen, when I say that simple, I mean it can be as powerful as it is simple. And what, what gives this prayer that power is this woman, again, she's not coming based on any merit of her own. We can pray that way sometimes. Our faith to God can be a lot more based on our own performance than his. Well, God, I'm coming to you as this church attending, you know, correct voting, Bible memorizing Christian. 
and look at who I am and look at what I've done. And God, look, look at those people. You know? I'm not like them, Lord. You know? and, and, but look at me. I'm the kind of person whose prayers you should answer. So here I am, Lord. No, she, she doesn't come with any of her own merit. She, listen, this is a beautiful picture of prayer. She brings her requests and just casts all of her life upon the mercy of God, the grace of God. She appeals to his mercy, not her own merit. You know, Jesus actually taught that this is the kind of heart posture that he looks upon. Jesus told, you guys remember this parable? Jesus told an incredible parable about two kinds of prayers, the prayer of a religious man and the prayer of a tax collector. This is what, this is what when, the, when people talk to you about the sinner's prayer, the modern sinner's prayer that's kind of like the abracadabra to get into the kingdom of God is not so much, you know, exactly in the Bible, but there is a sinner's prayer in the Bible, and it's actually here in Luke 18. Let me show you that. Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and this is the basis of their prayer requests. And they, and by the way, this is what always happens. When you trust in yourself that you're righteous, you're going to despise others. Because they're not like you, and they fall short. And, they, you know, you don't struggle with the sins that they struggle with. I mean, you do have your sins, but they're not their sins, you know. And so that's what you can tend to do. And so Jesus tells a parable about this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a religious Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So in that culture, the Pharisee is held up to the highest spiritual esteem. The tax collector is someone who's betrayed his own countrymen to work for the government, and he's at the bottom of the barrel there, on par with the prostitute is the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. Look at this prayer. God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men. God, thank you. Have you ever prayed that way? God, thank you for me. Lord, I just come to you, and I'm just so thankful for me. That's incredible. That's how this guy's praying. I'm not like those kinds of people, the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector next to me who's trying to pray as well. This guy thinks he's honoring God. This guy thinks that he is appealing to God some way with his own merits. He goes on to list his credentials before God. <laughs> he's like trying to get the job for the Lord. He says, I fast twice a week, like a good old Pharisee. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, notice this, standing afar off. Notice his posture. He's like, I, I can't even come close to God. I know who I am. I know what I've done. He would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, here's the sinner's prayer, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, would you just have mercy on me? I just cast myself at your mercy. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't this beautifully displayed in this woman? Let's look at this again. Matthew's version says that she comes and she falls at his feet saying, God, have mercy on me. This is where she's casting herself. And I want to point out something that parents already know. Isn't it interesting? Her daughter's the one with the demon, but she's asking for mercy for herself. Isn't that so true as a parent, how your, your children's trouble is your pain? And so she's coming with, she, she's bearing the pain of her child, and she's saying, God, have, what a great prayer. God, have mercy on me. I can't bear to see my child in trouble like this. And, and so what a great picture of faith. The first thing we see about her faith is that she appeals to the mercy of God, not her own merit. She's dependent on who God is. Now, it's not in Mark's version. Matthew shows us another insight that is pretty staggering. And we're not even at the part yet where Jesus talks about little dogs, okay? We're not even there yet. 
In Matthew's version, the Bible says this, that Jesus answered her not a word. Why, Lord, I'm casting myself on your mercy. (laughs) I'm praying the right way. Here's the next thing we see from this woman's prayer. She didn't just appeal to mercy, but we also see that she had a prayer that persisted, we're going to see, through resistance. There's something about a kind of faith in prayer that persists through resistance and even silence. She she goes to Jesus. He, He doesn't say a word. Now, I don't know if he gave her a look. I'm not sure. I have my own ideas of who Jesus is, and I I can imagine that maybe there was some affection on his face, but he doesn't answer her word. The disciples, they they catch on to this, and they think they're Jesus' like secret service personal bodyguards or something. So they notice that Jesus isn't replying, and so they see this woman as a nuisance. And so they they come and they urge him, saying, Jesus, send her away, because she cries out after us. They have a long way to go, these guys. They're like all of us. They're in process with the way of Jesus. That's why we're studying the way of Jesus. You couldn't be farther from the way of Jesus. Um, you know, when you study the, the, the way of Jesus, something that we've noticed here is like so much of the Gospel of Mark is about the way of Jesus in contrast to the way of the disciples, isn't it? And just how long it takes them to get things. And we're even going to see that in the next, uh, the next section. But this is what she's up against. The Lord is... Silent. You ever felt that from God? You ever prayed with your best you know, sincerity? You casted yourself in genuine humility. You're at the end of your rope, and you're just like, God, have mercy on me. And you're waiting for that voice out of the sky or that door to open or that thing to change. And, and here is how God responds. Nothing happens. Not a word. Now, I struggle with this. There's... Um, Believe it or not, even pastors experience silence from God. Did you know that? Well, Andrew, you have a direct line. You hear from him every day for your message. Oh, my goodness. We know what it's like to walk with Jesus. There are seasons where God's voice is as far as can be, and, and sensing his presence is one of the hardest things to do. And, and, and the, there's many writers that have talked about these seasons of life, these, these times called the dark night of the soul, where, where you know, there, there was a moment where you, you almost have to just rely on what you felt and what you've known and what you've heard because there, there are times that are quiet and there are times that are hard. Those times are for your faith to grow. Those times are for our faith to depend more on the truth of God and not just the feeling of God. Those are times where God wants to develop us to a, to a deeper faith. There's real faith that persists. And that's what, it's really interesting. The Bible tells us this about this woman. That Jesus doesn't answer her. The disciples want to reject her. And I I just love this. It says, she kept asking him. I love that. She was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. So she like, she falls already under all the categories of, so much is already stacked against her. Her gender and that culture. um, Her race as a Syrophoenician. And then the silence of Jesus, and I'm inspired by this. She keeps asking. I don't know about you. I know for me, a lot of times I pray my prayer request. I bring my request known to God, and I can kind of check it off the list. Like, I've prayed. Or I pray, and I don't, and I don't get a response back, so I'm like, all right, let's try something else, you know? But what a beautiful picture of someone who's persisting through the silence. They're continuing on. This reminds me of David in the Psalms. David prays like this a lot. By the way, if if God ever feels silent and you don't know what to pray, just go to the Psalms. If you're like, I need someone who's as emotionally as unstable as me and spiritually inconsistent as me, 
uh, to relate to, and I don't feel like I can find anyone in the Bible, there's 150 chapters for you, okay? You, you just go read the prayers of David, and it's like, okay, all right, there's, I'm allowed to be human and struggle and, and, and navigate through this. Look at this prayer of David in Psalm 28. He says, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. I don't want to die. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. What a beautiful prayer, Psalm 28, 1 and 2. Sometimes that's the best thing you could pray when God is silent. Is God, please hear me. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep crying out to you. And that's what this woman is doing. It says again that she kept asking him. She persisted in prayer. Uh, and we, we see this moves Jesus. He, he honors this, and he taught that, actually. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talked about this kind of prayer. He said to them a great uh, parable. I, lo I love storytelling Jesus. It's like some of the best content you'll ever consume. He says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. I'm not prepared, so I need some of your stuff. All right, hook me up. And he will answer from within and say, you know, through his ring doorbell, don't trouble me. You know, I'm already sleeping. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. That's too relatable. Gosh. It's like they have their own beds, you know? Okay, anyway. I cannot rise and give it to you, all right? I'm already sleeping. The guy knocks at the door. <laughs> He's like, I need some help. He's like, no, it's midnight, okay? Go to Publix, all right? It's closed. You're right, okay. So I say to you, Jesus says, though he will not rise and give it to him because he's his friend, <laughs> he's like, he's not doing it because he's his friend, clearly, at this point. As good of a friend he is, he's like, I'm, I'm a better friend to you if you let me get my sleep, okay? He says, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And then Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Because of his persistence, because he didn't knock on the door and then walk away at the first sign of rejection or the first moment of silence. He persisted in prayer. This woman's faith persisted through resilience. Now Jesus finally answers her as she keeps asking, and if his silence wasn't staggering, his words will be even more staggering, as if his silence wasn't enough. He answers, Jesus answers her and says this, let the little children be filled first, he says to her, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Ouch, right? Is this, are you sure it's red letters? Was that, was that the disciples saying that or was that Jesus? Is that really Jesus? Now, if you're familiar with the cultural context there, you can understand why this could seem to be extremely offensive. Um, in that culture, the Jews had a racist perspective and tone towards the Gentiles, and they called them dogs. Um, you know, we have modern <laughs> insults uh, of that caliber, all right? Uh, and that's exactly what they did. They spoke to them as, as those that were, were ravenous, you know, begging dogs. Uh, there, there's actually, I don't know if you know this, this, you don't need to know this, so I'm sorry that I'm sharing this information with you. That's a weird thing to say in a sermon. But 
there are like studies done by a lot of different um, far left movements that have looked at this passage and looked at Jesus and said, this is, Jesus is not sinless. Jesus here is a misogynist. Jesus here is a racist. How could he do this? It's like the truth comes out. No, no, okay. Put the pen down and open your Bible and read it with a commentary, okay? Now, in this passage, it's really beautiful what Jesus does, and it's actually only the New King James um, that, that uh, translates this accurately. The word Jesus uses is intentional. He doesn't use the cultural insult. He takes the derogatory tone out of it, and he says, little dogs. This is really interesting. Uh, he literally says, puppies. Who doesn't love a puppy, right? Jesus here, he per- listen, he's being intentional and thoughtful in his language. What he does is he makes an illustration that, that made sense to her. In that cultural context, the Jews were the children of, uh, of, of Israel, were the children of God. And the cultural idea was that everyone else was a dog. And Jesus says, no, 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 that, that, that's, that's not true. He uses a different word to, to convey that you're in the house. But he still speaks the illustration about priority. So he's using what's called a diminutive, a little dog. And the, the language literally to her, it would have shocked her. It actually would have spoke dignity to her. To go, wow, you're, you're not calling me what everyone else calls me. You're, you're giving me worth. You're saying that... I'm in the house. Now, it's an interesting kind of background, too, that Jesus is setting here. Jesus came as a Jewish man to the Jewish people, the Bible says, first. He's the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16, I'm not shade of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. This is the good news for everyone who believes, but it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus didn't come into this world and then head off into pagan Gentile territory to convert those who were caught up in all sorts of demonic religious worldviews. He came into the heart of Israel. He ministered there in Galilee. And that's the place in which he was first sent, to the Jew first. Now, he tells this woman in this illustration, let the children be filled first. He's talking about priority. You, you know that I've come for the Jews. And then this woman replies, and this is such a beautiful response. She says, yes, Lord, I love this. And if you have a dog, you know this is true. Even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now, I don't know about you, but like for me and my faith, at that point, I'm probably like, you know, and for that reason, I'm out. You know what I'm saying? Like that's usually the point where you didn't listen, you didn't hear my prayer request. You were silent. And then your disciples wanted to throw me out. And then you, you say that I'm not the priority of ministry for your life. That time would come, by the way. It's good news for us because most of us are, are genties, you know. But here, notice her posture. Notice the humility here. She says, yeah, but even the little dogs that are, you know, you have a dog, you know what this is like, right? All of a sudden they're present, they're at attention. Anytime everyone's eating, we've usually got three at any given moment at the house, and they're usually doing that. They're waiting for some crumb to fall. And usually sometimes I'm like, was that an accident, children? It's like, yeah, you know, it's usually that. But in in making this reply, here's what she's saying. We see that her faith appreciated whatever she could get from God. She was appreciative of even a little crumb. She wasn't entitled. Just this posture said, God, I'll I'll take what I can get from you because I'm so thankful for you and whatever you have for me. Her faith appreciated whatever she could get from the Lord. Now, Jesus says to her, for this saying, the demon has gone out of your daughter. He's moved by her faith. 
She knocks, she knocks, she persists through the resistance and the silence and, and even the, 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 the cultural offense even, even the priority. And Jesus says to her, because of your faith, go your way. It's in Matthew's gospel that he looks at her and says, oh woman, great is your faith. Jesus is like, you have some mega faith. This is big time faith. And notice that this isn't faith that believes just God for the impossible and names it and claims it. That's, that's faith great. It's great to believe God for the impossible. But the kind of faith that Jesus commends here is faith that has gone through all the resistance. Faith that has, has persevered and persisted when things are really hard, when God is really silent, when people are making it hard to seek God. This is faith. Jesus goes, this is great faith. And it, and it moves him. Uh, notice the next scene. It says, when she had come to her house, she found the demon out, had gone out, and her daughter was lying on the bed. I wonder what that walk home was, was like. I mean, what does she have to go off? Jesus is like, the demon has gone out. And she, she could have been like, wait, I don't even know you. Like, could you at least walk with me and like, so I can make sure? But she trusted his word. Beautiful faith. She goes home, takes him at his word. Jesus is moved by our faith. Jesus is moved by our troubles. Write that down. Jesus is also moved by our troubles. When we come to him in faith, he's not stationary. He's not unfazed by faith. He's moved by faith. We also see Jesus is moved by our troubles. We see another interesting story that moves Jesus here. It's a story of a deaf and mute man. Jesus departs from the region of Tyre and Sidon. He comes through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee, and it tells us there's a couple really good friends. Good friends bring friends to Jesus, right? And these friends, they brought to him, here's who they brought to Jesus, one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, going along with his deafness. Um, and we're going to come back to this. This word he, that, that Mark uses for impediment is uh, only used once in the New Testament here, and it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in one other place, and we're going we're gonna to see how it's connected. But they bring this man to Jesus, now, and they beg him to put his hand on him. Now, this, I imagine this guy has no idea what's going on. Like, just in my understanding, he's deaf. You know, there, there's some communication, maybe some sign language. But, like, does this guy know? Like, he's just kind of, like, being brought to this man Jesus. I mean, he's just kind of, he's got really good friends. I think it's interesting here. This is not somebody seeking Jesus. Sometimes that's how God shows up and ministers in our life. Sometimes it's because of our faith. We come to him. We cast ourselves on him. We beg him. We cry out to him. Sometimes Jesus just is there. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes he just shows up. It has nothing to do with you. Maybe you have some good friends. You're deaf and mute. And next thing you know, Jesus is right in front of you. It's like, who's this guy? They beg him. Would you, would you heal him? Jesus takes him aside from the multitude. The language is he brought him alone by himself. And Jesus put his fingers in his ears. The guy's like, what's going on, you know? Now, I imagine Jesus is, you know, gentle and lowly at heart. It's a great book. Sign up for the club, all right? Great book club. So I, I imagine Jesus didn't just go up and be like, hey, man. You know, he's probably like, Using it as language to say, like, I'm going to touch your ears. I'm going to heal you. And then he spat and he spits and he touches his tongue. I mean, at that point, the guy's like, all right. I mean, desperate times call for desperate measures. 
I want to point out Jesus, he heals the guy, okay? I want to point out that, um, have you noticed that Jesus rarely ever heals a, a person the same way twice? Have you noticed this? Sometimes he heals them on the spot. Sometimes uh, he speaks and they're healed. Sometimes he spits in mud. Sometimes he sticks his fingers in their ears. Sometimes he spits on his hand, slaps their tongue. Like sometimes... He, ne- he usually never heals the same way twice, and, and it's usually because, uh, m- maybe, speculation, you probably have heard this idea before, it's, um, if Jesus healed the same way twice, there would be some sect called, like, the, the swirlies for Jesus or something, that, like, they're, this, is how, this is how you're healed. You have a swimmer's ear? Come here, we just stick our finger, that's how Jesus did it, and you're healed. Usually, there's a variety of methods that Jesus employs that we can learn not to trust in the method, but in the sovereign power of God. It's not the means. It's not the method. Well, this is how you get this many people to, 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 to be saved. Or this is, it's like, no, we need to rest in the sovereign power of God. It seems like Jesus usually tailors his method to the individual and what they're going through and where they're at. So there's maybe some sign language here that Jesus is using to really communicate to this individual. Then looking up to heaven, I want you to see Jesus moved here. He sighed. It's a longing from the heart. And he said to him, Afatha, that is, be opened. So I just want you to envision God in the flesh here who formed and fashioned the human ear, who wired mankind with a tongue, who created man to hear God's voice and to speak God's word and to give life with his word like God did. And, And here is God in the flesh at this moment in history where the fall of man has come to this, where sin has broke into this world. And you just see this, this, move, this movement in Jesus' heart over the troubles of humanity because of sin. Do we see this? Do you see Jesus who's not apathetic, but he feels what you're feeling? And he sees it and he goes, this is not how things were created to be. This is not the world I made. And, and there's, a, there's a side that's also a pain that says, this is what sin causes. And then there's also the side that, that is longing for restoration. It's longing for redemption. It's usually that cycle. Whenever there's some kind of national tragedy like, like we've walked through recently as a nation, it's usually that cycle of the Christian ought to go, this is not how things were created to be. Even in our own personal lives, we frame it in the context of the truth of history. This, this is how wicked and evil sin is. In a culture that's trying to eliminate that word altogether, even the word evil, we want to just talk about everything as dysfunction. It's one of the most sinful things we could do, the Bible says. You look at, tra- and you go, this is sin. We should do that in our own lives as well. Go, man, this is my sin. And then we should sigh in a way that says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring restoration. Bring healing. Bring healing now. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look around at earth, we don't see heaven. And here's Jesus just embodying this tension of the, of the kingdom of God is already here, but it's also not yet. He's here And he says, notice this, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loose and he spoke plainly. I wonder what his first words were. Maybe he's like, wow. Maybe he said, thank you. Maybe he said, what just happened, you know? (laughs) Or who are you? I like that that's what's highlighted here. His ears are open and then he's speaking plainly. He's restored 
Uh, this is a, Mark is, is actually connecting this moment. This ha- actually happens in, uh, prophetically in the Old Testament. This event here in Mark 7 is spoken about. Remember, where does this happen? Modern day Lebanon, right? Tyre and Sidon. Notice Isaiah 35. This is thousands of years before Jesus. The prophet says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. Notice this, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Uh, This is a prophecy to Israel saying the the best days are coming, and it's not just going to be for Israel, but it's going to be for all the nations. Because Jesus is not just Messiah to Israel. Jesus is Messiah to the whole world. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so there's a prophecy saying there's a day coming. Now notice this. Therefore, Israel, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. God does this often in scripture, calls his people to strengthen themselves and say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Think about God having vengeance against sin and death. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. Notice this next verse. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb. It's the same word in the Greek Septuagint as the New Testament. It's the only other time it's mentioned. It shall sing. Maybe, maybe these are the, uh, this is what this guy's first words are. Maybe he just burst out in song. He starts singing and rejoicing. For the water shall birth forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. This Old Testament promise is fulfilled here in Mark 7 with this man. Jesus is moved by his trouble, and he's moved by our trouble as well. Let's close with this last one, and we'll end with the Lord's Supper here this morning. Lastly, Jesus is moved by our needs, okay? The first story, we see Jesus is moved by faith, this woman's faith that persists through the silence and the resistance. She kept asking. She, she appealed to God's mercy, not her own merits, She trusted Jesus. She appreciated whatever she could receive from him, that dependence upon him. And then we saw Jesus moved by our troubles, the the way that he reacted to this man in his trial and in his pain. He sighed and he brought healing and redemption. We also see, lastly, that Jesus is moved by our needs. This is really cool. In those days, we read here in chapter 8, there's now a, a giant multitude. So it goes from like a couple people finding out Jesus is at the house to a large multitude now gathering to receive ministry from Jesus. Uh, and it was a big crowd that came out and nobody prepared, nobody packed their lunch, nobody meal prepped, okay? And so they show up and they have nothing to eat. So Jesus calls his disciples to them. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week as Jesus is just patient with the disciples. But he gives them an opportunity here, all right? Because They've been in this situation before, two chapters ago, where the crowd comes, they need something to eat, and Jesus takes a little boy's lunchable, two fish and some loaves, and he multiplies it to feed the masses. So he calls his disciples to them, to himself, and he says, I have, notice this, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have continued with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. I just want you to see Jesus being attentive and aware to their need. He's aware of what they need. He's not just like, okay, go away now, figure it out yourself. No, he, he feels personally responsible to the needs of his people. He, is pers- he feels personally responsible to your needs, to what you need. It tells us this. He, sa- he says this, if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way. 
I don't want them to pass out from heat exhaustion and starvation. For some of them have come from really far. We got, we got to feed these people. So here's Jesus anticipating the need. There's, there's, future, there's a future situation coming here where if they don't eat, it could go bad for them. Uh, just a great reminder. Here's what the scriptures tell us. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching us how to bring our needs to God. And the way that he, he teaches us to bring our needs to God is he says, it's really not so much how you do it, but it's how you shouldn't do it. He says, don't be like the Pharisees and hypocrites that when they're in need, they come to God and they bring these like performative prayers. Like, Lord, thy God in thy heavens and quoting a bunch of scripture. Like the idea is like you're trying to get God's attention. You're trying to get God's attention because you have a need. And Jesus says, don't be like them. For your father knows the things you have even before you ask him. That's who God is. God saw... God knows your need even before you do. And he's moved by our needs. He feels responsibility to what we need. Isn't that beautiful? The, the, the care that he has as a shepherd for his people. And that's usually the picture that's being displayed through the crowds in Jesus. Is he's the shepherd and they're the flock. And he leads them where they need to go. They shall not want. They're provided for by him. Now, Jesus says to the disciples, man, I've got some compassion on these people. Um, you know, they have nothing to eat. And, and I think he's saying this to them to make them go, well, Jesus, why don't you just do the miracle thing again because you're Jesus, nothing too hard for you, and so just provide for the people. And he's kind of like waiting for them to say that because he just did that a couple chapters ago. But L disciples, here's what they do. It says, they say to Jesus, how can one satisfy this people with bread here in the wilderness, Lord? Lord, you got to think a little bit, okay? <laughs> like, how is this possible, God? Jesus is like, really? Really? You don't remember? Like it was what, a couple weeks ago? Okay, I just did this. And, this, and now as, as kind of sarcastic as we're being, how many times is this true of our lives? God, you could never provide for me. This is, so, this is way too hard for you. He provides for you and you're like, that was only God. Two weeks later, Lord, you could never provide for me, right? It's the cycle we all tend to go through. We're faulty, and we struggle with faithlessness, but God remains faithful despite how we feel. And the disciples are struggling to get here. So Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have, right? How many loaves do you have, you know? And they go, only seven. So we're just gonna, they're just going to die. I guess the people are going to die. They're just going to starve and pass out. It's going to be great. They say seven. They don't go seven. And you could, no, they just go seven. And so, now what's interesting is the last time this happened, that Jesus commanded the disciples, he's like, you guys are going to be a part of the miracle, and I want you to have all the people sit down. But this time, Jesus is like, just get, disciples, go sit over there, okay? And it says, Jesus steps up, and he commands all the people to sit down. He's like, okay, I'm going to take over here. And he took the seven loaves, he gave thanks, he broke them, and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they set them all before the multitude. And they also had a few, uh, they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them also before them. So they, oh, he set them before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. This is the Second time Jesus performs this miracle. In this case, now it's for four thousand, at least. Uh, that's the that's what's numbered of the men. Um, but we see the disciples, like us, struggling to trust that Jesus is going to make a way, despite how many times he has, struggling to trust. I mean, it's the same miracle. 
And they, they're struggling to get it. They're struggling to trust him. And, and they, they, this is a good place just to remember some biblical promises. I love this promise in Philippians 4.19 for God's people. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches by glory, in glory by Christ Jesus. This is what Paul speaks to a person, who, especially whose life is held open in generosity to the kingdom of God, who's not clenching too tight on their own things and their own stuff, but someone who has fully casted themselves and surrendered to God's provision. He's, he says it surely. My God shall supply as he has, and he continued to, to prove it. And then I love this one. It's our last scripture here, Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows what you need. Seek first instead the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's going to take care of you. Your life is not in your hands. Thankfully, your life is in the good shepherd's hands. And he's moved by your need. He, he takes personal responsibility for his children. You don't have to try to get his attention. He sees you. And he's with you. And the goal would be that we learn to trust he's able to do it, that he's faithful to do it. Uh, this is, in this passage, we saw again the way Jesus moved. He's moved by faith in our lives. We see that he's moved by the troubles we go through. He feels it. And he's moved by our needs and he's faithful to provide. Amen?